Hey, everybody, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly at the mic. And today I'm going to be talking to the journalist and author Don Latin. He was on the show a couple of years ago with his book, The Harvard Psychedelic Club, which is about the uh, posse of Harvard faculty and students led by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who experimented with hallucinogenic drugs in the early 1960s and helped to spark the whole psychedelic revolution. Well, this time around, Don Latin has a new book that goes further back in the history of that movement and looks at some earlier explorers of inner space, particularly the British writer Aldous Huxley and his friend Gerald Hurd. Hurd was another British intellectual, a kind of New Age philosopher and self-styled mystic. Both Huxley and Hurd moved to the United States in 1937. Both were proponents of Eastern spirituality and the mind-expanding potential of psychedelic drugs well before the 60s. They also had a very interesting connection to Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those overlapping worlds of spirituality, drugs, addiction, and recovery were all part of a momentous cultural reorientation here in America and across the West in the late 20th century. Don Latin had a foot in all of those worlds. The guy has a lot of feet. He got turned on to psychedelics in the 1970s, and then over the next couple of decades became a habitual boozer and drug user, even as he managed to carry on a productive and award-winning career as a newspaper journalist. He was a religion writer for the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner. And finally, in 2004, he checked himself into a detox program and embraced sobriety with the help of AA. His new book tells the intersecting stories of Aldous Huxley, Gerald Hurd, Bill Wilson, and himself. It's called Distilled Spirits, Getting High, Then Sober, with a famous writer, a forgotten philosopher, and a hopeless drunk. And by the way, Don Latin will be in town talking about his book this week. He'll be at the Capitola Book Cafe in Capitola this coming Thursday, November 8th at 7.30 p.m. Here's my conversation with Don Latin. Don, the title of your book, Distilled Spirits, Getting High, Then Sober, with a famous writer, a forgotten philosopher, and a hopeless drunk. I had the feeling reading that, that that a certain amount of thought and work went into just coming up with a title that would somehow encapsulate all the things you're trying to do in this book. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was very hard to come up with a title for this book because it's this strange mix of memoir and a group biography of three guys I never knew, three guys of my grandfather's generation. The Distilled Spirits part of the title, the main title, was inspired by a letter, actually, that Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychologist, wrote to Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, talking about uh, a patient that Jung had had way back in the 30s who helped actually start AA, a rich guy from New York who was drinking himself to death, but he had so much money he went back to Zurich to be treated by the illustrious Dr. Jung. Years later, in the early 60s, Jung and Wilson are corresponding, and Jung writes this pretty, pretty famous in AA letter to Wilson where he talks about the word spiritus in Latin, referring to both a sublime religious experience and to what for the alcoholic can be a depraving poison. That's where I got the idea for the title Distilled Spirits. By the way, the famous writer is Aldous Huxley. The forgotten philosopher is Gerald Hurd. The hopeless drunk is Bill Wilson, otherwise known as Bill W., the founder of AA. Co-founder, yeah. Yeah, co-founder of AA with Dr. Bob, so-called Dr. Bob. But there's the fourth character, you, who were also a hopeless drunk at one time. I wanted to start with you and ask what kind of drunk you were. 
I was a uh, highly functioning alcoholic and drug addict. I was taught to be that by my father, who was also a, I wasn't a drug addict, but he was a highly functioning uh, alcoholic. You know, I, I had what they call a high bottom. Uh, you know, I still had my house. I still had the job. I still had the wife. I never even got a DUI. Really? I never got a DUI. I should have. I drove across the Bay Bridge drunk hundreds of times just out of sheer luck. I never got a DUI. Were you but, an asshole? <laughs> I'm a recovering asshole. <laughs> you, you can sort of boil down the whole 12-step program for me. It's like, try to be less of an asshole. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's surrendering to a power greater than yourselves and the amends and the searching fearless moral inventory. But basically, it boils down to being less of an asshole, which is easier when you're not drinking. <laughs> One reason I ask that is because you not only were boozing, but you were also coked up a lot. You used a combination, in the words of Aldous Huxley, of stimulants and stupefactions. Stupefactions, yes. <laughs> stupefactions. Um, that combination of sort of um, speedy drugs and booze, that was your magical mix? Well, my daily cocktail actually involved caffeine, cocaine, alcohol, two antidepressants, Adderall, and Ambien to fall asleep. So... It, I always it, it marvel pretty... at guys like you. How do you function? <laughs> or how did you function? I you know, say. It, it, it actually, it was very easy to function because that's just, I, you know, it's not like I was drunk all the time. You know, I mean, I wasn't like, I didn't drink in the morning. Uh, you know, and some people are surprised that I went to rehab. I mean, I was able to hide it f from most people. Um, you know, I was considered a heavy drinker, but, uh, you know, the cocaine actually sobers you up and you can actually function better and drink more. Uh, with a with a combination of alcohol and cocaine, I told myself, yeah, I'm probably an alcoholic and a drug addict, but I'm a smart alcoholic and a drug addict. You have to be smart to do this. You know, that was part of my arrogance. I mean, I came up with all kinds of of I thought brilliant ways to control my my uh, intake of cocaine, which was really my main problem more than the alcohol, by the way. So, I, I would buy like an eight ball, an eighth of an ounce of cocaine and so i wouldn't do it all at one time i'd put half of it in a lock box and i'd mail myself the key so i would you know wouldn't do it all on the first night and it worked for a while but what i discovered is they just don't make lock boxes like <laughs> they used to and when you tell an other addict this story they love it because it's that was my way of telling myself oh, i'm in control <laughs> Yeah, I'm an addict, but I'm dealing with it, you know. But you're, you're saying that uh, eventually you learned to pry the lockboxes Oh, open. yeah. Oh, yeah. Went through a couple lockboxes. You, you have the story of um, what was for you your lowest moment, your bottom, uh, where you started to think about recovery. Did you really, when you ran out of Coke, go over to your dealer's house, break in, walk past his roommate, kick his door down, and start rifling through his room? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. He's an old friend of mine. I mean, I used to I used to live in this house years ago, back in college. I've known this guy for decades, and and he's but he became my my drug dealer. He's a friend and drug dealer, and you know I had all kinds of resentments. You know that he was basically using me to support his habit, and you know I had the right to go in and take whatever I wanted, and you know I mean I I in the book I make that my bottom, my low point. Um, 
not just because of that, but in, in the, the stories before that, I went to this party with my wife and a friend's house, and it was a perfectly fine party. I should have been having a good time, but I could not get into it. I couldn't get high enough to get into it, and I had to run out and find cocaine, and I disappeared for two hours and didn't tell anybody where I was. And, you know, I mean, as the kind of stories you hear in uh, Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, AA, that's not actually a very dramatic story. You hear, no. so you hear much better stories than that. <laughs> I feel a little embarrassed that that's my, my my bottom, you know? I mean, I had to sort of find a moment, you know, and that really was the moment where, you know, I just sort of broke down and started crying. I'm just out of control. I've got to get help. And that's when I decided I was going to go to rehab. So that, in that sense, it was the bottom. But um, I had a great time getting high uh, getting drunk and getting high for decades. I really enjoyed it. It was the most, one of the, one of the most, if not the most important thing in my life. But, you know, at a certain point, it just stopped working. It was uh, 2004 when you finally checked yourself into uh, a rehab program. Yeah. And uh... it was about 18 months later that I finally, I mean, that's my sobriety date is a little more than six years ago. Uh-huh. So I relapsed about a month out of rehab. Which is also very common. Very typical. Yeah, yeah, I didn't go back to rehab, though. I was able to stop on my own. But it was the classic AA approach, uh, the meetings, the sponsor, all of that, that really got you out of addiction and into well, sobriety? Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, let me just start out by saying when I talk about AA, because a lot of people think you shouldn't talk about AA on the radio. You should, that it, it's, it, it violates anonymity, your own anonymity, but you still shouldn't do that. So when I talk about AA, it's just my own experience that I'm sure. talking about, obviously, but I, want to, I don't speak for AA at all. No one does. Um, but for me, AA worked, you know, you can say, well, do you really need these 12 steps? Uh is alcoholism really a disease? Do we really need all the God talk in the 12 steps? Because God pops up. You know, God as we understood him is the is the important point there. Or higher power. Or, or higher power. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they but they do use the word God, but it's, it's any kind of, you can even call God, they say, like the group of drunks, G-O-D. I mean, the group is can be your, your higher power. And in some ways, that's how it was for me. Because I for me, uh, it kind of boils down to two things. A.A., and some other groups that I was involved with outside of AA, um, it really boils down to the redemptive power of storytelling and the strength of fellowship. That's really what did it for me. Uh, you know, you go to an AA meeting, people are telling stories, telling great stories. I mean, it's free entertainment. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's amazing the stories you hear. And then you learn to tell your own story and you tell it as honestly as you can which is what you'd also do in a memoir. So I say at the end of the book that, you know, what I learned, you know, writing this book is the same thing I learned in recovery, which is, like I said, the redemptive power of storytelling and the strength of fellowship. And that's basically just finding a new social network. Now, I didn't have to drop all my friends, but there were a few friends who I had to stop hanging out with, you know. Uh, uh, But you find a new crowd and you make new friends. I mean, you know, you get a certain age, it's hard to make new friends. You don't really want to make new friends and meet new people, but you're sort of forced to when you get into recovery. And I've just found an incredible group of men and women who are now among my best friends. And um, there's a real honesty that comes out of, you know, being involved in these these groups um, that I find very refreshing. The stories are so remarkable and have such a you-can't-make-this-up quality that I've heard that, like, Hollywood screenwriters go into uh, (laughs) 12-step meetings, you know, under false pretenses just to gather material. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But why is the storytelling effective? What does it do? Well, I mean, what do you do when you go to a therapist? You tell you you talk about your your life and your 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 story, and uh, you know there is a difference between your real life and the story of your life. And on the one hand, it can be therapeutic and liberating to tell your story, but it can also you can also get stuck in your story. But what happens with I think in in twelve uh, step groups is you tell your story kind of that's how I used to be, and this is like this is what happened, and this is what's what it's like now. So you're reimagining your story as you're reliving your life or reorganizing your life. So it's it's there's a real power in that, you know. It's it, it's like I said, that's why I think it works. At least for me, that's why it works. Well, and, and in contrast to the more staid therapeutic environment where there's one person who's completely aloof and essentially without sin, and you're pouring out all of your peculiarities and failings to that person, in a 12-step group, everybody's doing it. Uh, you know, you can let go of shame because everybody's telling something horribly, yeah. you know, shameful about themselves. And that's got to be part of it, a big part of it, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, I wanted to reassure you that we're not going to spend the whole time talking about you, <laughs> but because you are a central character in the book, <laughs> and because I wanted to get to this issue, the fact that you as a journalist had spent most of your career avoiding the topic of yourself, mm -hmm. and for this book you had to cross the eye barrier. Yes. <laughs> uh, first person. Um, last time you and I talked, it was about your book, The Harvard Psychedelic Club, about uh, those Harvard... Uh, folks who helped launch the psychedelic revolution in the early 60s. And I started by asking you if you'd ever dropped acid. And you said, yeah. And you talked about a good trip and a bad trip. And then we moved on and never talked about you again. But even then, you must have been gestating this book, right? Well, actually, the, there is an afterword uh, with the Harvard Psychedelic Club where I do talk about my own ecstasies and agonies with yes. psychedelics. And yeah. that's really kind of what led to, in a way, led to... Uh, it's more complicated than that, but... That's the first time that I really did uh, try to break the eye barrier. Um, you know, I'm a journalist. I worked for a daily newspaper, you know, San Francisco Chronicle, for many years. I'm old school. You know, it's not about me. Story is not about me. I, mean, I is a dirty word. If you ever refer to yourself, it's maybe a reporter, you know, <laughs> like in the third person or something. You have some uh, stories in here about your life as a newspaper man and the culture of hard drinking in that profession. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it'll surprise anybody to know that old-timer news guys could really pound the liquor and right. often did in their off hours and in their on hours. Yeah. There's some great stories in here. One, one is about a veteran journalist who actually went to see some uh, appearance by then-President Gerald Ford and uh, cut away to a bar as quickly as possible after the event and actually missed the assassination <laughs> attempt by Sarah Jane Moore, which was, what year was that? 19, uh, it's in the 70s, yeah. the mid-70s. Yeah, so he actually yeah. missed a huge story because he was off, you know, in his cups somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> But the funny thing is, there was another assassination attempt of, uh, like a month or two earlier in Sacramento. That was by Squeaky Fromm. By yeah. Squeaky Fromm, and and this this reporter George Miller, who was a great reporter. You know, I I I worked with him. You know, he was a great guy, but he was a, he was legendary drinker, and uh, he had, he was all on top of that story. So people asked him, how did you how could you let that happen? How could you do that? He said, who thought lightning would strike twice? <laughs> that someone would try to assassinate the president of the United States? You know, in Northern California, twice in two months. You know, well, so. he was off. <laughs> <laughs> Off looking for white lightning, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it struck me that this is a profession where you don't talk about yourself. In fact, I, I kind of think it must attract people, and I guess I would include myself as an interviewer, who love talking about other people's stories and don't want to be in the center of things. And yet, 
and and here you have all the drinking, right, in the journalistic world, at least back then. Right. And then in this other world of AA, of recovery, you talk about yourself, you reveal yourself, you bury yourself, and you get over the drinking or the drugging. Mm-hmm. Is there something to be made of that opposition? I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I just have to think about it. Um, you know, there's a certain voyeurism in, in being a newspaper reporter. Yes. And what I loved about it is it was a ticket to be anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be at some Skid Row hotel covering, you know, a triple murder, or you can be, you know, in the White House <clears throat> or on the Pope's plane, as I mean, I tell like a lot of my stories, which were, you know, uh, <laughs> getting loaded on the Pope's plane. Um <laughs> I want to get so, to that. I want to get to that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, the other subjects of your book. Let's start with AA. Thank you. <laughs> Enough about me. What do you think of me? Uh, you're you're not off the hot seat yet, but <laughs> for the moment, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, founded in 1930... 34, 35. 34, yeah. 35. Again, by two guys. Uh, they called themselves in the spirit of anonymity, Bill W. and Dr. Bob. Uh, Bill Wilson and Dr. Robert Bob Smith. Robert Smith, and they created this program that is still going strong, not only in officially in the AA organization, but in uh, countless 12-step programs and other programs modeled on the whole 12-step mm-hmm. idea. Uh, groups for sex addiction, groups for overeating, groups for uh, loved ones of addicts, uh, narcotics, narcotics anonymous. It, it goes on and on and on. Codependency. It really is a kind of um, group therapy paradigm that took hold and has, has really transformed culture yeah. as we know it. Yeah. Where did the ideas come from? I mean, the ideas including uh, let's treat alcoholism as a disease, not as just a mortal sin. Let's have a decentralized organization where various groups can get together around the country without sort of top-down control and just try to follow these programs themselves, working with each other in a real grassroots sort of way that emphasizes some kind of looser spirituality than strict Christianity, mm. let's say, where people can define God as they know him or even just call it a higher power, uh, and where it is this fellowship and storytelling approach. Mm. Where did all this come from? You know, in the myth of AA, it just sort of sprang up between these two guys, right? Yeah. Well, you mentioned that it's much bigger than just AA. There are all the other recovery groups. Yes. But it's actually much bigger than that. I mean, it's really, I see it as part of what uh, scholars of religion, uh, especially a guy Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist of religion at Princeton, called the small group movement. And it's like-minded people or people with a common problem or a common interest getting together in small groups and basically growing their own religion. I mean, you can, it's meditation groups, it can be Bible study groups, it can be men's groups, women's groups, couples groups, uh, all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> one third of Americans today call themselves spiritual but not religious. It's the fastest growing religion by far in America, much faster than the Muslims or the Mormons or any other Pentecostals or any other groups you hear about. And these are not people who are atheists or even agnostics, but they are basically, a lot of them pray and meditate and believe in God in various ways, but they're basically taking control of their own religious experience, and they're emphasizing experience over doctrine, dogma, and denominationalism. And, um, you know, AA is not the only reason that happened, but I think it's a, it's a, it's one of the central movements in that larger, that, that larger universe that I just described. And I think the genius of it was 
that open-ended approach to the divine. That, and then you also mentioned the decentralized structure. I mean, it's amazing how little organization there is, and anybody can start a meeting, and it's amazing how it all kind of holds together. So you think it has its roots in this sort of group, community-based spirituality. So would it have drawn then on Quaker traditions, you think, for instance? Uh, Well, it actually came out of something called the Oxford uh uh, uh, movement, which uh, Oxford groups, which were a Christian movement where they had uh, a step-by-step program for basically conversion. There was something called the Alcoholic Squad of of these Oxford groups. Um, So it really comes out of that. Some of the, the the steps are pretty similar to what mm-hmm. so so it comes out of that. Hmm. Um, but Wilson was really influenced by um, William James. The morning after he had his founding revelation at a what we guess we'd call a rehab center, it was a hospital for wealthy diehard drunks in in New York. This is Bill Towns Wilson. Hospital. Yeah. Bill Wilson, yeah. He'd been fed an enormous quantity of uh, belladonna. Uh... Well, that's another part of the story, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you talk about the influences. Uh, I mean, the morning after he had this revelation, where he decided, which was like the founding myth of AA, uh, a friend of his brought a copy of William James' The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is also about, a, you know, an open-ended approach to spiritual experience. And so it's I think William James is a major influence on the way AA developed. And also Carl, Carl Jung. Um, Wilson was a big fan of, of, of Jung and James. Bill W. in his writings was pretty explicit. I think you cite a, a passage of his where he says, you can be a Christian or you can be an atheist or you can be a Buddhist or you can be a Jew. It doesn't matter. Right? Didn't he say something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's God as you understood him or understand him. Yeah. But but it is, in your opinion, a spiritual movement. Uh, you know, when I first read about, heard about, learned about AA, you know, it seemed like American business speak. You know, American pragmatism. Right. Well, there is that. There, there is, is that, that side of it. Yeah. And there's I, the I, Dale I thought, Carnegie kind of <laughs> exactly. Stuff. And it, the self, they didn't invent self help. That was already out there. That's but right. They the, popularized it. That's right. There was a whole self help movement. Some of it surrounding, I guess, what was you know might, you might think of the archetypal profession at that time, the salesman. Right. How to sell better. Yeah. An old sales make training. Fr- make friends and influence people. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which itself is kind of religious. Yeah, you know, the yeah. whole idea and, and, of selling. You know, you read the big, the, what they call the big book, which is the Bible of AA, which yeah. was mostly written by Bill Wilson, and there was a lot of other contributors to it, but uh, the main section of it was mostly written by Bill Wilson. You know, he was a Wall Street stockbroker. I mean, a stock analyst, and and a lot of the early AA guys were out of, out of Wall Street. They were advertising guys. They were businessmen, and it, it's written with that kind of a mentality. And they, the whole thing about taking inventory. Well, that was like a business takes inventory. So as we take inventory you know it's very sexist it's very kind of corporate i mean it really turns a lot of people off when they read including me you know and then, uh-huh. of course they won't change a word because there's kind of a it's the bible <laughs> it's the bible <laughs> yeah. yeah so and the one but at the same time when you really read it, it it does have a fairly progressive very progressive attitude towards spirituality and and your and and the divine you know so yeah so i wondered when i first learned about it whether the the whole spiritual side was not just Oh, some people say, oh, that's not the important part. The important part is just working this program, doing the steps. It's really a practical recipe for recovery. But you see it as fundamentally a spiritual movement. And I think you'd go so far as to say the reason is because addiction itself has its roots in a spiritual problem. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it, it did for you, don't you think? Yeah, it's really uh, f- a lot of it for me was a way to get outside of myself, just in ways I have to transcend myself. And you know, I write a lot about not just about my problems with alcohol, but my experimentation with LSD. You know, and what really interests me, and kind of one of the themes through the book is kind of the search, my search for, you know, the connection between the spiritual search and substances that produce altered states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And um, the most powerful spiritual experiences I ever had were on drugs. They were on psychedelic drugs. And, you know, with alcohol, it's, it's a similar quest to try to get out of yourself but what can happen is you become even more self-centered mm. it's a it's a very mm. tricky process but there is a thirst i mean a spiritual thirst and a thirst for uh, alcohol and like that that's where we get the the title distilled spirits so there is that that dichotomy that there. connection between alcoholic spirits yeah. and the, yeah. the human and, spirit and, yeah. and getting high is an attempt to elevate oneself become closer to mm-hmm. something divine, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Huxley was, Aldous Huxley, you know, one of your three characters here, was very aware of that. Uh, he spoke um, way back when about problems of addiction and alcohol in terms of a desire to get beyond the mundane, the material, the mm-hmm. self, mm-hmm. that it was in some sense spiritually driven. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he... I mean, he was not interested in this initially. I mean, his early novels, he was a social satirist. He was part of the so-called lost generation after World War One. You know, people were embracing this philosophy of meaninglessness. I mean, he was quite the cynic. You know, his grandfather t- coined the term agnostic, Thomas Henry Huxley, and he, he came out of sort of an agnostic tradition. I mean, he was raised as an agnostic, you know, like, like I said, by the guy who coined the grandfather coined the word. Uh, and it really wasn't until he met Gerald Hurd. It was Gerald Hurd who got Huxley interested in religion, philosophy, mysticism. I mean, they, they met in 1929 and became fast friends. And and the two of them uh, came to the United States together in 1937 on the same, on the same boat, the SS Normandy, not meaning to stay here. Uh, they were on a sort of extended vacation and a speaking tour. They were pacifists and as World War II was approaching, trying to get that message out, which wasn't a popular message you know, mm-hmm. at the at the time with Hitler and everything. But um, And they wound up staying in Southern California the rest of their lives. Um, and sowing the seeds and, of the counterculture and yeah, New Age. And, and Alan, Alan Watts called them, including Christopher Isherwood, who came shortly after them, the great writer who's probably the three, the best writer, Christopher Isherwood, mm-hmm. uh, the British mystical expatriates of Southern California. <laughs> and, let's, uh, uh, yeah, let's clarify for listeners. Um, I think most people know who Aldous Huxley was, very famous writer. Uh, he was a, um, a leading intellectual in England and part of an incredibly illustrious intellectual family. Grandfather was Thomas Huxley, sort of right-hand man of, of Darwin. Mm-hmm. Dar- Darwin's bulldog. Darwin's they bulldog, him. they called him. And Aldous Huxley wrote books like Brave New World, and then later, which we'll talk about, Doors of Perception. Um, Gerald Hurd, as you say in your book, not that many people, I think, these days will know who he is. He was another British intellectual um, who became sort of a self-styled mystic mm-hmm. um, and had an idea of promoting the psychological evolution of the entire human race towards something better. Yeah, yeah, he was a uh, he was an Anglo-Irish writer and mystic 
And one of the, along with Huxley, one of the last great polymaths interested in everything, you know, kind of in an era of increasing specialization. But he was really a mystic, as was what he was. And um, he was the original science correspondent for BBC Radio. Um, and he, his books, way back in the 20s, what, he's, what he was writing about is what's happening is there's an evolutionary breakthrough in human consciousness towards what he called a superconsciousness. And it can be cultivated, and it should be cultivated. I mean, he was—he had a very strict six-hour-a-day meditation regime, personally. And uh, I mean, in some ways, I, I see Hurt as the secret godfather of the New Age movement. Exactly. Yeah. That sort of—he was like the yeah. Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. You know. But while he did help popularize a lot of these ideas in the 20s and 30s and 40s and in the 50s, it really goes back to Theosophy and and even earlier than that. You can. Obviously, it's not just Gerald Hurd, but these these but, were movements, Theosophy and the Vedanta Society, that brought you know Indian uh, spiritualism to the U.S. and yeah, the West. Yeah, yeah, and 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 Hurd and Huxley and and, and Isherwood uh, really helped popularize Vedanta. I mean, they didn't found Vedanta, but uh, in Southern California, you know, in the twenties and right. even in the thirties later with them, uh, they really did help popularize Vedanta. By the way, I wanted to mention that. As we're going to talk about more, um, Heard also got into psychedelics very early in the 50s and turned a lot of people on, including Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, turned him on to LSD. He was also into UFOs, and he wrote these immortal words, It is difficult to resist the conclusion that Mars is ruled. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that Mars is ruled by insects. Yeah. Um, yeah. So super he, intelligent bees. <laughs> super intelligent bees. He had a thing about bees. I mean, he uh, at least half the ideas that Hurd had were are completely fanciful and outrageous. You know, and he didn't care. But he had this whole thing about bees. I mean, he thought that the bees were somehow piloting the ufos because of something about i he had a whole scientific explanation of which i can't remember but that's the pull quote yeah that that line but but he was not... he wrote the first it was really the first popular book about ufos especially by someone who was reputable and he was considered very reputable at the time i mean he was a leading public intellectual his re books were reviewed by the new york times you know he was much mm -hmm. better known then than he is now but he was you know both he and huxley and wilson were into all kinds of psychic things you know seances and paranormal, you know, explorations. They were into some really, you know, pretty out there stuff. Um, so he did that. I mean, he was also gay, and he wrote some early stuff about gay spirituality under the gnome de plume DB vest. So, you know, he was into all kinds of all kinds of things, as, as was Huxley. You know, that's, that's what I find so interesting about them. There, there's also this intersection of Eastern spirituality uh, psychedelics, which start coming into the picture really in the 1950s, of sort of sci-fi and UFO stuff. And then high tech also comes in. Heard turned on, I guess, some leading technologists of the day, mm -hmm. people who were later players in Silicon Valley. And so that weird nexus of um, New Age thinking and technological invention that we saw you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, yeah. That, again, was starting to come together back then in, in Hurd's day. Yeah, if you trace back, like, who turned on who, you yeah, yeah. it often goes back to Gerald Hurd. And I mean, there's a whole book written about the whole Silicon Valley uh, story called uh, What the Dormouse Said, which is from White Rabbit, mm -hmm. uh, by John Markoff, who I used to work with at The Examiner. So if you're interested in that, that's the book to read. I mean, he traces it back to... Uh, you, he, I don't know if he actually goes back to Herd or not, but I, I trace it back to Herd. Um, 
there were some other intermediaries there. But I mean, Heard turned on a, a, a psychiatrist in Los Angeles who went on to turn on Cary Grant and Jack Nicholson and a lot of uh, a lot of Hollywood people. Huxley is the one who turned on Heard. I mean, Heard got Huxley interested in philosophy and religion, and it was but Huxley was first in terms of the psychedelics. I mean, Huxley had his psychedelic baptism in the spring of 1953, and it was mescaline. And it was it was mescaline. And uh, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, who was a who was a researcher, Canadian psychedelic drug researcher. Um, so Huxley was the first one into the psychedelics, but very quickly he turned Heard on, and Heard became more of the proto Timothy Leary. Uh, with LSD, he, yeah, he also turned on uh, Henry and Claire Booth Luce, Henry Henry Luce of the you know the Time Life Publishing Empire. Uh, these are super important business people, uh, you know. Yeah, the chairman of the board of Southern California Edison, uh, you know John Courtney Murray, famous Jesuit theologian, all kinds of, of of people. The psychiatrist I mentioned that basically turned on Hollywood. And, you know, you also have to remember, though, that this was a different time. I mean, people didn't think of LSD as we think of it now. The right. 60s hadn't happened. Timothy Leary hadn't turned on yet. Uh, there was no tie-dye, no Grateful Dead, you know, none of that. I mean, LSD, A, it was legal, and it was seen as a promising new drug to help psychologists understand the human mind. At first, to understand mental illness, but at a certain point, people said, well, maybe we can actually understand more positive altered states of consciousness, like the mystical experience. Uh, and that was just happening around this time in the mid-1950s. And there was all this research going on, I mean, some serious research about using psychedelics to, for, to treat alcoholism and depression and various things. And there was a huge backlash against not just the street use, but the research into psychedelics because of all the craziness of the 60s, which I think Leary is largely responsible for. And that's all coming back now. Uh, there's a new wave just started in the 90s. But there was a 40-year lull. And mm -hmm. they're, in some ways, they're just picking up now where they left off in the in the 50s. Right. It was all shut down in the 60s. but 70s, back, 80s, too. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But then um, going back to the 50s, it yeah. was really a different world, as you say. The, uh, the stark politicization and polarization of pro-drug, anti-drug, of counterculture versus mainstream and all of that hadn't really crystallized. Right. So you had people, very unlikely people, taking LSD, industrialists and business people and, you know, mainstream celebrities and all of these folks. Um, I wanted to play a little audio clip here, and this is from a video that you've posted on your website. Um, this may give a sense of how new and exploratory this whole world was at the time. This is from an actual TV show? Yeah, this is something from a 1956 CBS television show called Focus on Sanity, which was about mental health, a serious you know, show about mental health issues. They had shows like that in the 50s on television, of course, in black and white. And it features uh, Gerald Hurd and Dr. Sidney Cohen, who was a leading uh, LSD researcher in the mid-50s in Los Angeles, and on the program, they actually show research subjects being turned. First, they interview them, and then they, and they come back a few hours later when they're tripping. And there's some extraordinary footage of this one woman who I call June Cleaver on acid because she seems like this 50s housewife. You know, she's beautiful for one thing, but she's a very sweet, you know, housewife. And she talks about her life and living by the raising her son. And and then she takes the LSD, and she sounds like some you know, 60s acid goddess. Uh, and and it, it's, oh, you're going to play some of it. I'm going to play some of it. Yeah. This is yeah. uh, June Cleaver on acid. 
<laughs> uh, she starts out very much like June Cleaver, and then an hour later, she sounds like this, being uh, interviewed by Dr. Sidney Cohen. Everything is in color, and, and I can feel the air. I can, I can see it. I can see all the molecules. I, I'm, I'm part of it. I, I'm, can't you see it? I'm trying. Oh, it's just like, like you're released, or you're free, or... I don't know how I can tell you. How do you feel inside? Inside? I don't have any inside. Is it all one? It, it would be all one if, if, if you weren't here, and if, 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 if nobody else... Yes, everything is one. I, you have nothing to do with it. I am one with what I am. I can see everything in color. Everything. You have to see the air. You can't believe it. So, you might think that was from the 1960s, but it's not. It's from the 50s. Yeah, it just goes to show that it's not all just the social cues that led people to experience that or talk like that on LSD. It really did ignite a kind of a mystical consciousness. That is exactly uh, what I was going to ask you. You know, I used to think, well, maybe all of the, you know, sort of spiritual trappings of the LSD experience were suggested by people like Leary and Alpert, and that made people sort of experience it that way. But if they'd come out of a different milieu, would they really have had the same reaction? And here she is with no expectations whatsoever. Right, no preconceived ideas. No preconceived ideas, and she sounds just like she's read the acid manual, you know? (laughs) Right, the psychedelic experience. (laughs) The psychedelic experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, there's since you mentioned that book, which was a a guidebook a lot of people used for tripping in the mid-60s, it was written by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass and and Ralph Metzner. Uh, And... It's basically based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it's the book that John Lennon, the Beatle John Lennon, uh, actually read for, during his first acid trip. And it influenced, it did, that actually did influence the way I think he saw the experience. And that had a lot to do with the Beatles going to India, which was, you know, in terms of pop culture and popularizing, you know, Eastern mysticism, that was the event. Well, you can trace that back. So we've traced it back to Leary and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Who gave Leary the Tibetan Book of the Dead? It was Aldous Huxley who gave him the Tibetan Book of the Dead and told him this was a way to understand the psychedelic experience. Who gave Aldous Huxley the Tibetan Book of the Dead? Well, Huxley was at uh, Trabuco College in the 1940s, with Gerald Hurd, this retreat center that Hurd had set up, and the guy who discovered the Tibetan Book of the Dead and basically wrote it, but uh, he gave it to Huxley. So you can trace the Beatles going to India directly back to what Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley were doing at this place, Trabuco College, in the 1940s. <laughs> and, and by the way, this song written by John Lennon that includes references to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm.
Tomorrow Never Knows. One of the strangest Beatles songs. Strangest, coolest <laughs> Beatles songs ever. Yeah. Uh, with, I think, uh, one of uh, Ringo Starr's greatest moments, too. <laughs> that amazing <laughs> you know, drum riff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you just, uh, in a nutshell, uh, described this intertwining of these lives that, um, you know, led to this massive movement that, though the 60s are over, long over, and though American society sort of retreated from the more radical side of the 60s, all this stuff is still here. This approach to spirituality, uh, open-minded, uh, open-ended, non-doctrinal. Right, spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, well, Look at the whole yoga religious. craze. I yoga mean, craze. there's yoga yeah. studios on every corner. And uh, again, there's lots of reasons for that. It's not just these mm-hmm. three guys, you know, but but they were an important part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They really did o- sort of open the door to new ways of thinking about religion and spirituality and, and doors of perception. Doors of perception. <laughs> the Huxley book that... Really, I think was the the inspiration for a lot of the early psychedelic thinking. Of course, it was the the book from which the rock group The Doors took their name. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Leary read it and others oh, yeah. describing Huxley's 1953 mescaline experience in very spiritual terms and linking it to historical mysticism uh, in a lot of different traditions, Eastern yeah, and, and Western. Yeah, that was really the first kind of popular book in English about the psychedelic yeah. experience. Yeah. And, you know, Huxley was such a great, had such a great style and way to get across these ideas. Um, although, I, you know, he did, but uh, later on, you know, people like Alan Watts, I think, even did a better job. Uh, another of Englishman. Uh, another Englishman who, who was a guy who, who coined the term British mystical expatriates of Southern California. Absolutely. Yeah. And Watts, um, of course, was well known through his writings, uh, but also through his radio broadcasts. He was at KPFA in Berkeley. In Berkeley, in and uh, he'd be this incredible, you know, kind of stream of consciousness, you know, discussions about the mystical state and sometimes about psychedelic drugs. But you could always hear the ice tinkling <sighs> in the glass. I mean, he was drink. He was a he was an alcoholic. He and, died of he what died cirrhosis? Of, he died of alcohol. His alcoholism killed him. Yeah, fairly young. Uh, so there you go. Yeah, and yeah. Timothy Leary was also an alcoholic. Hmm. We mentioned uh, John Lennon. We played a song by John Lennon. You also talk about John Lennon in your book. You say, Lennon and McCartney were two of my early influences. The third was Hugh Hefner. <laughs> oh, I, devoted, I devoted myself to a careful study of the Playboy yeah, I, philosophy. I was, I was 13. Okay. <laughs> Shut up and let me read your quote. Oh, come I, on. No. I devoted myself to a careful study of the Playboy philosophy, which brought together three things I truly loved. Cool stereo equipment, fast cars, and girls with large breasts. Why did you leave Hugh Hefner out of this <laughs> list of philosophers? That's huh? the next book. Oh, okay. That's the next book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what is it with these Englishmen? We mentioned, we've mentioned Heard, Huxley, and Watts, all three extremely influential, extremely important, um, and uh, in whose shadow we live today in many ways. Mm-hmm. What do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? You are. Yeah. I think uh, more of my interviewees should say that, actually. (laughs) What Uh, do you think? (laughs) Right off the top of my head. The English had, obviously, a deep connection to India India. because they had occupied it as a colony for so long. So they might be the bridge between East and West. Yeah, yeah. No, there's some... That's that's very good. And I have thought of that, and I forgot, and that's why I didn't (laughs) didn't say that. Um. I wanted to get back to something you said earlier about um, Huxley having made this personal journey, if I can use that cliche, from a kind of cosmopolitan cynic and ironist to a really sincere 
believer in a kind of spirituality, East-West spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like the culture as a whole does this pendulum swing between burnout cynicism and, you know, sort of earnest spiritual hopefulness from decade to decade almost, mm-hmm. uh, that his own arc uh, reproduced that process that we, we as a culture go through periodically. I mean, the 60s being a very earnest, hopeful decade in some yeah. ways. And in the, the 20s, there was a lot of in, interest in, in Vedanta and, and, and Eastern religion, too. And spiritualism and, and, of various and kinds. spiritualism. Yeah. 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 We were both talking before the interview began uh, about that new movie, uh, The Master, by Paul Thomas Anderson with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Joaquin Phoenix about a fictional or fictionalized spiritual leader in the post-war era. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of that happening. It wasn't yet yeah. hippiedom, but boy, oh boy, was there a lot of sort of self-invented religion going on in America. Yeah, part that of that time. sort of early self-help movement going on. And, yeah. and again, they're sort of trying to reconcile in a weird way science and religion. I mean, that's, you know, Hubbard has this E-meter. Oh, you're talking about L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard, yeah, who's, who's founder really, of Scientology and Dianetics. more than anyone, the basis of that character. Yes. It's not directly maybe based on Hubbard. Yeah. But, well, um, Don, much to your chagrin, I want to get back to your life uh, a little bit here. Um, that you... is my favorite subject. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, what's interesting is, you know, of course, you, your own life brings together all the strands that we're talking about, spirituality, drugs, drink, uh, and religion. Uh, you became not just a journalist, not just any journalist, but you chose to be on what you call the God Beat at the San Francisco Examiner and then the Chronicle. You were the religion reporter. Right. And at the same time, well, let me ask this question. You met the Dalai Lama. There's a picture of you in the book, actually a photo of you holding his hand. Right. You actually had a bit of an audience with Pope John Paul II. You met Mother Teresa, J. Krishnamurti, Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. Who was the holiest person that you got to talk to while hammered? <laughs> while hammered? <laughs> well, you were doing your drinking and all this at the same time, yeah? Well, yeah. I mean, that's like I was drunk all the time, you know. Uh, If I was hammered, I probably can't remember (laughs) who it was. Well, you have a no. I write about I I write a bit about those characters. You know, I was a fairly skeptical spiritual seeker. I mean, you know, I was a reporter. We're supposed to be skeptical. You know, I say in the book that I spent, you know, a long time in that kind of dim alley where skepticism meets cynicism, looking for a little light. And the whole thing of becoming a religion reporter, I mean, I was a reporter covering other subjects before, but fairly early on, I I got got into the, on the religion beat, the God beat. And looking back on it, I think part of it was a kind of a reluctant spiritual search. It was a way for me to... Uh, have a spiritual search and get paid for it <laughs> and uh but but it it wasn't so much a conscious it wasn't a conscious search like that i mean a lot of it was just it was a great story and as a journalist there were great stories that weren't being covered in san francisco because neither paper had a full-time religion reporter and i got into it initially because of people's temple actually it was the that it was the people's jim jones jim jones yeah you mean after the 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 mass suicide yeah um in 1970 i was working at the eight uh, yeah i was working at the examiner then and um you know jones people forget that jim jones was not considered a crazy cult leader for most of his career he was considered like a very progressive uh mainline protestant 
pastor in San Francisco with an integrated church and open to gay people and uh, in some ways sort of like Cecil Williams is seen, not that Cecil Williams is another Jim Jones. He's the pastor of Glide. Of Glide. But, you know, he was was, uh, very politically involved. Mm -hmm. Jones was chairman of the Housing Authority. You know, he was in the White House. He was very politically connected, you know, but there was some 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 really dark stuff, uh, you know, bubbling under the surface with him, obviously. And and the papers in San Francisco really missed that story. And, uh, you know, you some of your listeners may remember, you know, Jones took about 900 people down to the jungles of South America and basically went off the deep end with paranoia and uh, had a mass murder suicide of like 900 people, more than 900 people. And uh, so it was a huge story at the time and obviously in San Francisco. And um, so it was I did some of those stories. I didn't go down there. I wasn't the main reporter on that. But the the paper started thinking that they should have had someone uh, really paying more attention to the to religion in San Francisco. So that's actually how the wow. how the beat came back. So, wow. um, but, you know, I did huh. have an interest in it, you know, from back in my college days and mystical experiences that I had on psychedelics. And, you know, I was playing around with some, you know, going to some Zen meditation retreats at the time. So I did have an interest in it. Oh, for but, sure. But, you know, I wasn't thinking of myself as a particularly religious or spiritual well, person. Well, does a person but... become a, a full-time re- reporter on religion or a scholar of religion without some sense of genuine seeking? Yeah, you know? but I, I, it's funny. I write about this a little bit in the book. There's so much skepticism and cynicism in the newsroom about anything that smacks of true believer, you know, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. spirituality. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's New Age or fundamentalist Christianity, just anything. And that you, I almost had to create this more irreverent persona than I really had, sort of, so people would take me seriously. Because if people thought I believed any of this stuff, I mean, I would lose all credibility. <laughs> this, you know, this gets uh, me back to my perhaps um, gratuitous speculation about the relationship between drinking, uh, at least that old school world of journalism, uh, the cynicism of the newsroom, and then on the other hand, the earnest world of AA the focus on the self and, and honest admission and rather than the sort of self-concealing world of journalism where all you do is report on other people and get the eye out of the story altogether. The super objectivity, you know, that's the goal of journalism, mm-hmm. the unrealistic objectivity in some cases. Yeah. Well, what you do, you really exploit people. You, by, by, for my definition, you exploit people when you write about them. You take their story. You mold their story. And, you know, that's what you do as a religion reporter, too. And... You know, in a way, I couldn't get religion while I was covering it. I mean, I didn't really understand religion because I was outside of it. And I don't think I could have, A, sobered up or B, opened up as much as I have (laughs) spiritually if I stayed at the newspaper. You do tell some interesting stories, though, that the Godbeat uh, had its adventures, including, you know, uh, being among the Vatican press corps, writing on what was called... um, Shepherd One, which is the Pope's plane, his version of uh, Air Force One. And, you know, I might have thought that such an environment would be rather buttoned down, but apparently you guys, you journalists, were living it up. Well, I was, and a few <laughs> of us were. You know, not, not, not everyone. But... <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the Pope, uh, is a Pope John Paul II, who, yeah. you know, was the globetrotting Pope. I mean, he's yeah. really the one who started that. You know, Popes didn't used to do that. They used to basically stay in the Vatican mm. and... And, uh, you know, and he, when he was first elected, he was a very young and vibrant, uh, guy. And, uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I 
covered a lot of Pope trips. It's it's a very strange thing. It's kind of like a cross between a presidential campaign and a rock con, like the Rolling Stones tour or something. Uh, but the only time you ever get to actually interview or talk to the Pope is the tradition was on the first leg of a foreign trip. So in the in this in my case when he came to the San Francisco in the late 80s, uh, this the you fly to Rome and then you get on the Pope's plane and you fly from Rome to the first city, which was Miami. And at some point, you usually the Pope comes out and everyone gets a chance to ask him a few questions. Yeah, so um, so I tell the story on you know that we're sitting on the plane and of course there's wine is flowing freely and they actually were carving you know roasts in the aisle it's all male stewards by the way not stewardesses mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, they're giving you know little gifts and it's very all very nice and we're sitting there you know i was getting a little little sloshed and uh, <laughs> well what are we going to ask the pope you know and i was sitting next to a friend of mine who she claimed she was going to ask him boxers or briefs your holiness what are you wearing <laughs> under those robes but she, she chickened out but <laughs> And the question I asked him was actually about AIDS because it was the AIDS uh, epidemic was just really getting going and the Pope hadn't said anything about that at this point. And the head of the Southern Baptist Convention had just said uh, that AIDS was God's wrath against homosexuals and that was a big story at the time. So, you know, I, 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 that's what I asked the Pope about, which turned out to be the, the big story that, that day. That, because that, that, that day. Because but, his response was? Well, his response was that God does not do that. God does not punish people with disease and... You know, he said to churches, uh, I said, well, but but don't a lot of gay people feel like outsiders? And he, you know, he said some very, very positive things. No, the church is open to everyone. Well, some people could argue whether that's true or not. <laughs> but uh, well, so he, and then when he came to San Francisco, he met with a group of people with AIDS and you know, children and, and, and gay people, even a gay priest who had AIDS and, and, and you know, hugged people. And uh, at that time, people were afraid to hug people with AIDS. So he actually did some very positive things, I think, around that. And on the other hand, we can go off on, you know, churches attitudes on homosexuality. I don't want to really get into that, but, you know, there's a whole other side to right. it. Right. But, but, but what he but, said to you, you quoted him as saying in, in, the, in this article you ended up writing, the homosexual, like all people who suffer, are inside the church. No, not inside the church, in the heart of the church. You know, of course, policy remained that you could not ordain a priest who is openly gay. Uh, you know, being homosexual was a sin. Nonetheless, that was a pretty remarkable statement at that time yeah, no, from the Pope. It was. And yeah. you reported it. You, Don, reported yeah, it. I did, yes. Yeah, it was a big one. It was yeah. a big one. Yeah. Uh, um, we've been talking about Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley, who settled in Southern California. Gerald Hurd started this kind of a spiritual retreat. He called it Trabuco College. It wasn't a college in the traditional sense. Right. Kind of a monastery retreat in the Santa Ana Mountains, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, what may be news to a lot of people is that Bill Wilson, the founder of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, got to know and befriend Heard and became very interested in what they were doing. So there was a real link between AA and this alternative spirituality, this Eastern spirituality that was being cultivated by Gerald Heard. Then Heard turned Bill W. on to acid in 1956. He gave him some really interesting advice, too. Um, according to your book, um, Bill Wilson was asking Hurd's advice about whether to make Alcoholics Anonymous a kind of centralized, centrally controlled organization. And Hurd said, 
Heard encouraged him to make it to decentralize it as much as possible. I mean, Heard wasn't the only person saying that. I mean, Wilson was there were factions in AA for both both ways. So I'm not saying that Heard was responsible for the structure of of AA, but that was what one of the things that was on Wilson's mind, and he was talking to to Heard about that when he first met him. And and that's a, a way in which AA differs completely from well, some people I think have accused it of being a cult, but it is totally unlike cults in that there is no charismatic leader no pulling the leader strings at, at the top. And in fact, anybody can start an AA chapter and they don't have to funnel money to the parent organization or pay tribute to the parent organization and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a revolutionary idea in itself. Yeah, the decentralized nature and... Do it uh, yourself. Grassroots, do it yourself. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 You say in your book that despite having gotten clean and sober with the help of AA... And, you know, do you still go to meetings a lot? I, I do go to, uh, uh, I what do you call a home group? I'm, I go to this one meeting uh, on, on Sunday mornings most weeks. Yeah. Do you still do this the sponsorship thing, too? I have a sponsor. Yeah. Are you a sponsor? a sponsor? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, you pretty wholeheartedly embraced it, but you still say in your book that, you know, you had to fight with yourself when you were joining because you didn't want to get into the God talk uh, of AA. And you say, my critical mind leads me to a new book titled God is Not One, which reminds me of how I used to think about religion. The idea, this is the author, uh, Stephen Prothero. Yeah. Prothero says, the idea of religious unity is wishful thinking. Do you still wrestle with that, or or has your own experience persuaded you that it's not just wishful thinking? No, I I do wrestle with it, and I I question myself. And, you know, I think questioning is good. (laughs) You know, I think doubt is is a positive thing. uh, thing. So I, 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 I do question, but, um, you know, I also see the limits of questioning and, uh, I am trying to, you know, embrace a meditation practice. I'm a horrible meditator. You know, I write about that. Now don't be you judgmental. Know. That's the one thing you're not supposed to be, right? I know. I know. Don't, don't ask me about meditation because like, like I say, what do I know? But, well, you, you sit Zazen, but, you do Zen meditation. Well, I'm actually, I'm involved with this, this group. It's not really, some of the people in it are, are in recovery, others aren't. And it's this tradition called Centering Prayer. And um, the guy, Father Thomas Keating, is kind of the founder of it. It goes back to Merton. Actually, it goes back Thomas to Merton. Thomas Merton and sort of also Christian mysticism. Mm-hmm. But this particular group, it's kind of a mixture of Zen meditation and Christian mysticism. And so it's basically what we do is I, uh, we get together and we have two 20-minute periods of silent meditation. And uh, it's very much like a Vipassana meditation, uh, just focusing on your breath, or you might have a word that you'll try to focus on. And uh, then we do this thing uh, where we read a very short passage of scripture. It can be from a Buddhist sutra, it can be from the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible. And we read it four times and try to get beyond the rational way of thinking about it and what it what one word or one phrase in the scripture brings up so it's a whole other way of looking for me it was a whole other way of looking at 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 holy scripture from different traditions but it's a small group of people it's 10 or 15 people and it has sort of the energy of a of an a, a small aa meeting too mm-hmm. and uh so that's that's basically my spiritual practice such as it is these days and in the meditation, um, is it an effort to let the mind quiet down a bit? 
Yeah. Um, it's subtle. Yeah, yeah. And when you say you're terrible at it, it's because your mind is busy. Yeah. Which a I lot have, of people I discover. Have the, the monkey mind and what Huxley <laughs> called the whirly gig. But that's, a, that's what uh, many people or most people or, or maybe everybody discovers when yeah. they try to do this is the, yeah. the mind just races. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, uh, I have a friend who, uh, Kevin Griffin, who teaches workshops on Buddhism and meditation, you know, and. And, you know, he said, you just have to show up and sit there and, and kind of have faith that there'll be, you'll get something, not that you get something out of it, but, uh, you know, it's sort of like when I was, for years I was trying to sober up, I thought I'd never be able to achieve that. You know, I really didn't. And then at some point I did. And you sort of look at meditation the same way. You just show up and you sit there and you see what happens. Mm. You know, this connection between religion, spirituality, and recovery, the recovery story itself and in your book is among other things a recovery story yeah you know has this uh shape that's a lot like religious redemption you know a lot like yeah the sinner <laughs> being forgiven uh yeah. the prodigal son being accepted back salvation of some kind the, the connection's so deep it's it's really hard to pick them apart isn't it yeah, well, a lot of the 12 steps are basically going through, you know, the, some of the aspects of religion, like, you know, forgiveness and redemption and making amends and and trying to go beyond our own self-centeredness. I mean, for me, that's a lot of what it's about, you know. Uh, it's getting over your own kind of fear-based self-centeredness. Uh, and so, yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, I mean, and when you're writing a memoir, it's kind of tricky because you feel like you have to sort of have a, a tale of heroic redemption in the end, you know, and you have to mm -hmm. have an ending, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, this is very much still a work in progress. So I didn't want to, you know, make more out of it than, than it is, you know, my own story. And that's why I do, I do bring up the doubt at the mm -hmm. end, which you mentioned, because mm -hmm. I do have that. I mean, I do have moments where I, you know you know, feel like throwing it away. You know, I mean, my, my skeptical, cynical self is still there, you know, and, and, uh, but a lot of honest that, religious but, people will say the same thing. Even, yeah. even occasionally clergy people will yeah, say, I Mother, have remember Mother Teresa wrote this while she was questioning her own faith. You yeah. Know, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever miss the old days of boozing and coking and all that? Not really. You know, I did the first year, um, but I really don't have any cravings or, you know, I don't maybe enjoy parties quite as much as I used to. Yeah, I used to go to parties to get to get high. I mean, that was the main attraction. So, you know, I mean, it's I've sort of changed the way I spend my time a little bit. But uh, but no, I mean, I, I honor those those times, both in terms of drinking and also psychedelic drugs. I mean, I had some wonderful times. I had some very revelatory experiences. But that was then, you know, and mm. this is now. So. Mm. Hmm. So if I offered you a couple lines right now, you'd you'd decline. Uh, <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> I, th I think. <laughs> I meant lines of poetry. Don't get the wrong idea. You know, just a little William Blake. Anyway, Don Latin will be in Capitola discussing his book, Distilled Spirits: Getting High Then Sober with a famous writer, a forgotten philosopher, and a hopeless drunk at the Capitola Book Cafe on Thursday, November 8th at 7.30 p.m. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. And we are always available online at 7thAvenueProject.com. You can listen to past shows and learn more. You can do the same at iTunes. If you do go to iTunes, why don't you just take an extra second or two to rate this show? Mm -hmm.